We've seen the past couple of years how misguided public policy has uh, contributed to and compounded mistakes in the banking sector that then led to a worldwide uh, financial crisis. We've also seen in the past couple of decades how numerous developing countries have slipped into crises and on some occasions even have uh, defaulted on their debt. In most cases, governments in some form or, or another have provided loans or bailouts to firms and nations. Uh, many of us criticize the wisdom of those policies, but that's another matter. With the revelation that Greece's fiscal deficit is more than 12 percent of GDP, more than three times what had previously been uh, reported in a country with a public debt of 113 percent of GDP, we are now in entirely new territory. The possibility that a member country of the EU and the Eurozone uh, could possibly uh, default on its debt has wide implications beyond uh, Greece and calls into question not only the ability of Greece and Europe to respond to the problem, but also the viability of the Euro and the long-term sustainability of fiscal policy in industrialized countries. So far, there seems to be no political consensus as to how to deal with the Greek debt crisis. Vague promises by uh, European leaders that they will provide a safety net to Greece and the Greek government's inability to convince markets that it has a serious plan to address uh, the problem have only contributed to the turmoil. The involvement of the IMF is seen as a, as a signal that uh, neither Greece nor Europe seems to get their, have the ability to get their acts uh, together. Markets have understandably responded to this uncertainty by putting pressure on Greek bonds, on banks, and on the euro itself. But the divisions in Europe are understandable, too. Why should the more fiscally prudent Germans be asked to bail out uh, the more spendthrift uh, Greek government? Uh, and if Europe uh, does provide a bailout, what does that mean in terms of incentives and precedents for uh, other fiscally reckless members of the EU? As the German daily Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung recently noted, uh, Germans who recently raised their retirement age from 65 to 67 may have come to the uh, may have to come to the rescue of Greeks who are protesting having to raise their uh, pension eligibility age from 61 to 63. This, of course, is seen as unfair and absurd. In fact, the problem gets worse. Uh, while most EU members now have higher explicit debts than, than the 60% allowed by the Maastricht Treaty. Their unfunded liabilities due mostly to their pension and health care uh, systems uh, is much worse. My colleague Jagadish Gokali uh, here at Cato recently calculated that the true debt, taking the, into account the explicit and the unfunded liabilities uh, of EU members, averages about 430% uh, of GDP. Greece's true debt is an astounding 875% of GDP. Is Greece, as my colleague Jose Pineda uh, claims, just the first act of the coming fiscal bankruptcy of Europe? Even as the evidence of uh, irresponsible uh, spending pile policies pile up, there are still many who wish to live in denial. Greece, until recently, was blaming its deteriorating situation on uh, speculators and Anglo-Saxon capitalism. 
to make us to, to help us make sense out of all of this, I'm very pleased to have with us this afternoon two very keen observers of the Greek and European uh, political and economic scene. Our first speaker is Takis Mihas, uh, who will be uh, concentrating on the Greek uh, domestic situation. Uh, Mr. Mihas is a staff writer for the Greek daily Eleftherotypia and is a member of the European Union of Journalists. He's really one of the leading uh, uh, journalists of, of Greece and has contributed frequent articles to the English language media and the European media, including the Wall Street Journal, the New Republic, the National Interest, and so on. His books in English include The Absence of Civil Society in Greece, Unholy Alliance, Greece and Milosevic's Serbia, and rethink the causes and consequences of September 11th. Please help me welcome Mr. Mihas. Hello. I uh, would like to thank uh, the people at Cato, Cato and Ian for their invitation, for, the, for giving me the opportunity to say a few words about uh, the situation in Greece. Cato, uh, Cato's analysis, uh, there is a group of people in Greece who belong both to the left and to the right of the political spectrum, who we follow with great interest the analysis of Cato on various issues. We find them always extremely inspiring, and irrespective of whether one agrees or disagrees, what we tend to appreciate most about the analysis which are coming from Cato is the spirit of rationality, which uh, we think is one of the most <coughs> important and uh, parts uh, which we should keep uh, in the discussion. I mean, there is so much irrationality around in the world today that uh, analysis like the ones that the scholars of Cato are producing are extremely important. Now, I'm not going to talk very much about debts, Eurozone, about the public deficits, the situation of Greece in those terms, because I think you know all those, everybody by now knows in utmost detail uh, Greece's financial problem. We read them every day in the papers. Uh, even if we want to avoid the issue, we cannot. It's front page news in New York Times, in uh, Washington Post, everywhere. What I will instead concentrate upon is giving you a picture of the structures of Greek society and economy, which, uh, giving a brief historical overview also, which have contributed to the present situation. Now, Greece has been called by various analysts as the last existing socialist state in Europe, the last Marxist state, and uh, related terms. All these terms denote the predominance of politics in the economy. Yet one could say that Greece fits more the model of a post-socialist society as described by Yegor Gaidar. It is a form of capitalism where the bureaucracy and its allies consider the state their property and use its mechanisms for personal enrichment. 
in Greece, the fundamental principle that has been dictating the political and economic development of the country since the creation of the Greek state in the 19th century is political clientelism. This is a system where political support is provided in exchange for material benefits. Those benefits have a name in Greece. They are called rusfeti. It's an institutionalized part of the Greek culture. You get a rusfeti from the politician for support, for supporting him. And uh, in this situation, rent-seeking, that is the attempts by various groups and individuals to influence the political allocation of benefits, becomes paramount. Now, the origins of political clientelism can be traced back to the formation of the Greek state in 1830. As a left-wing historian puts it, the fundamental structure of Greece has never been civil society. Ever since the middle of the 19th century, nothing could be done in Greece without it necessarily passing through the machinery of the state. This, uh, the social group that took over the running of the Greek state after the liberation from the Ottomans was primarily the village notables. Their power under Ottoman rule lay not in their ownership of land, but in the fact that they acted as tax collectors for the Ottomans, something which gave them prestige, power, and wealth. Their new role as leaders of the Greek state was continuous with the old one. Tax collection was still their major business. However, under the new conditions, they did not have to transfer the proceeds to the Ottoman rulers, but could keep it from the, for themselves. At the same time, they could utilize the networks of local allegiances they had built under Ottoman rule and carry them into the new state. Political office gave them seemingly inexhaustible resources. In Western Europe, and especially in the Anglo-Saxon world and in Northern Europe, the state was primarily seen as a protector of certain Lockean rights, especially the right to property. This conception, as has been frequently noted, went hand in hand with the existence of a ruling class with vested interests in large property holdings. In the new Greek state, on the contrary, owing to the absence of a large uh, land holding class, the ruling class saw the state not any, as an instrument for the protection of pre-existing assets, but as its source of income par excellence. Hence, the conquest of the state apparatus did not only serve the power ambitions of various individuals. It became also the most important mechanism for the distribution of material rewards and benefits. And the benefits which the political system could bestow upon the, uh, the clients took many forms. The most important, however, of this, the most important was the provision of jobs in the civil service this provision of job for the supporters and the kins uh, and their kin. This quickly led to an explosion in the numbers of people employed by the state. By the late 1880s, when Greece was still an agricultural country which had barely begun to industrialize, Greece had one of the largest civil services in Europe. Per 10,000 inhabitants, there were 200 civil servants in Belgium, 176 in France, 126 in Germany, and 73 in Great Britain. In Greece, the number, well, the number was 214. 
This went hand in hand with the rise in public expenditure. By the second hand, half of the 19th century, Greece had one of the highest ratios of public expenditure to GDP. It was 19.1% compared with 6.6% for England, 13.2% for France, 10% for Germany, and 7% for the U.S. <coughs> the largest part of public expenditure was not directed to public works or infrastructure, but to the wages and salaries of the civil servants. The grounds for the rent-seeking struggles, struggles of the future were thus firmly laid. Everybody wanted to join the civil service. As the well-known French nobleman and author Arthur Gobineau observed at the time, a whole society seems to be operating on the motto that to the extent that only the state has money, one should take advantage of this fact and become a civil servant. Much water has, of course, flown under the bridge since those days. Greece experienced wars, revolutions, occupations, bankruptcies, dictatorship, earthquakes. Most important of all, perhaps, Greece won the 2004 European Soccer Championship <laughs> under a German coach, no less. <laughs> Yet, Yet, if there was one thing that remained constant throughout this period was the system of political clientelism as the central organizing principle of Greek society. Of course, some things had changed. From the middle of the 30s onwards, political parties ceased being simple loose coteries of personalities heading extended patronage networks and became more centralized. The clientelistic orientation, however, remained intact. Another thing that changed, of course, was the rhetoric that legitimized the distribution of benefits. Client groups today receive benefits in the name of social justice, in the name of national necessity, or in the name of acquired rights. All those three concepts are extremely prominent in the political discourse in Greece, and as I suspect elsewhere too. Now we can briefly distinguish analytically three types of benefits which a party in power provides today to its clients. First, employment in the civil sector. Secondly, establishing rules and regulations that limit competition and create closed shops. Thirdly, imposing levies on transactions for the benefit of organized groups that are not part of the transaction. Let me elaborate briefly on each. Providing a job in the civil service constituted through the years, continued through the years to be one of the main instruments used by the political class to ensure the loyalty of the voters. But something very significant happened in 1911. An article in the Constitution was adopted in which granted life employment to those employed in the public sector. The people who introduced this constitutional amendment had the best of intentions. They wanted to provide the civil service with continuity. Until that time, every time a party came to power, it used to fire the previous lot and hire new ones. However, as we know, the road to hell is always paved with good intentions. And this is what happened also this time. Instead of getting a more rational bureaucracy, 
got, Greece simply got a bigger bureaucracy. Political parties continued to staff the civil service with their supporters, <coughs> only now they could not fire the previous lot, which meant a huge rise in the bureaucracy. Today, according to estimates provided by the Greek Ministry of Finance, there are around one million people employed by the state, which includes clerks, teachers, doctors, not to forget the priests, who are public functionaries in Greece receiving their salary from the state. Today, one out of four working Greeks is employed wholly or partly in the public sector, while over 80% of public expenditure goes to the wages, salaries, and pensions of the civil servants. Moreover, what is very interesting is that getting a civil service job in Greece is widely perceived as a sinecure and not as a contractual obligation to work. To give you an example, I just read in a newspaper, and the newspapers are full of these examples before I left. It was discovered that the previous government had hired 40 people as gardeners for a central public hospital in Athens. You will say, what is wrong with that? Nothing apart from the fact that this hospital does not have a garden. And, of course, you know, I could go on for hours uh, talking about those kind of examples. All this creates a very inefficient civil service. Inefficiency is also reinforced by a system of promotions based on seniority and not on merit or talent. One can only move faster up the ladder if one has good connections with politicians and trade unionists. <coughs> However, if the bureaucracy is not very efficient in the traditional economic sense of the word, it is extremely efficient in what uh, public choice theorists have studied in, uh, in its ability to produce laws and regulations. It is estimated that from 1974 until today, that is in the course of 35 years, 100,000 laws and regulations were passed, which amount to 2,900 per year or eight laws per day. The existence of this maze of laws hinders any attempt by reform-minded politicians to introduce changes. When I served as a communications advisor to the Ministry of, Minister of Trade and Industry, Mr. Andrianopoulos, in the early 90s, one of the biggest problems we faced was trying to find out which, which law was in effect for a particular domain. Because obviously you cannot make any changes if you don't know what the law is. And, it, and by the time you discover what law is in effect, the various groups have all the time to sort of organize themselves and try in every possible way to undermine reform. And in the meantime, elections have been called, and then the whole process stops. Uh, now, the second way the system of benefits operates is by setting up closed shops and rules that limit competition. In Greece, one can find a whole set of laws mandating opening and closing hours of enterprises, defining the geographical proximity where two similar establishments can operate, setting minimal prices for various professional services, issuing licenses, and preventing or limiting competition. Lawyers, for example, represent one of the most heavily regulated professions. Their presence is compulsory in many transactions, for example, in the signing of any real estate 
contract where they receive from 0.5 to 1% of the value of the real estate. You have to pay that to the lawyers. They do absolutely nothing, but they receive 1%. Um, moreover, the state also mandates that they charge a fixed minimum fee for their various services, which, of course, prevents competitions from new entrants into the profession. Similar rules apply also to engineers and architects. Engineers receive 8% of the total value of the, of the, of the house they are going to build. Uh, other restrictions operate, for example, in, take drugstores, for example, in order to open a drugstore in Greece, you have to have a degree in pharmacology. If you want to open a shop selling spectacles, you have to have a degree in optics. I mean, so you have all kinds of laws which... Uh, uh, another very important area that is heavily regulated is in transport of goods. Because of the geomorphology of Greece, road transport is very important. It is estimate that, estimated that over 96% of overland trade is conducted by trucks. Only truckers having medallion licenses are allowed to operate. At the same time, the prices they charge is fixed by the state in the most minute detail, and it's usually above the level of inflation. Size is not necessarily related to the powers of the groups. Indeed, some very small groups are able to extract significant rents. One such group is the Union of Loaders, a group of 100 people that operates in the center of vegetable market in Athens. These markets are extremely important because they act as reference points for the setting of the prices in other peripheral vegetable markets. Producers bring their goods to the market. The only people that are allowed to unload them from trucks using forklifts are members of the local union of loaders. The price for their services is fixed by the state, so much for a bag of potatoes, so much for a box of tomatoes, etc. Officially, no one else is allowed to unload. But here things are getting interesting, because we are in Greece. Now, what happens in effect is that the people who do the job are not the members of the, the, the loaders, is immigrant labor. The Greek producer who brings his goods to the market has to pay twice. He pays one price, uh, market price for immigrant labor, which does the job, and then he also has to pay the loaders, the official loaders, for the regulated prices for allowing him to unload his things using different labor. Of course, he can protest and he can demand that the union of loaders unload his tomatoes. Well, he can demand, and then he can wait and wait and wait until his tomatoes turn to pulp. The third interesting way by which the political distribution of benefits operates is through the imposition of levels or on transactions benefiting client groups that are not part of the transaction. Let me give you some examples. If you want to start a business in Greece, you have to pay an amount amounting to 1% of the starting capital to the lawyer's pension fund. If you have a business and you want to advertise your business or your product, 
20% of the advertising costs goes to the pension fund of journalists. Personally, I'm very happy for this levy, actually. <laughs> now, if you, each time you buy a ticket on a boat, 10% goes to the pension fund of the hardware workers. If you sell supplies to the armies, you have to pay 10% of the money to the pension fund of the military officers. When you buy a ticket at a soccer game, 25% goes to the pension funds of the police and so on and so forth. There are estimated to be about 1,000 such levies in, uh, in the Greek society. What is really intriguing and very interesting is that sometimes levies are imposed for the benefit of groups that are no longer into existence. I don't know whether you have ever there is a Greek island, which you probably have heard about and you probably have visited, which is called Santorini. It's a volcanic island. And it's a beautiful island. I think you should visit it. And one of the main reasons why you should visit it is you go by boat, and then you look at the price, at, 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 the, at your ticket. And the ticket analyzes states where each part of the money which you have paid goes. Now. In the old days, ships could not land at the harbor. So you had the passengers had to be transported from the ship by lighters operating small, small boats. Today, lighters do not exist any longer since the ships can now dock on the island. What continues to exist, however, is the special levy that passengers have to pay to the union of lighters as part of the price of the ticket. All this, of course, is done in the name of social justice, and which actually gives rise to some very fascinating philosophical questions like, does social justice necessitate transfers to non-existing entities? Does the concept of social justice apply to unicorns? I mean, <laughs> in this system, which is not funny from one point onwards, the Rent-seeking easily shades into corruption. According to figures provided by Transparency International and the World Economic Forum, Greece has the second more corrupt public sector in the European Union. The first is Bulgaria. Part of this corruption is related to the massive production of laws and regulations by the bureaucracy. This veritable maze of laws and regulation ensures that any entrepreneur can easily find himself or herself accused of tax evasion or some other misdeed and forced to pay exorbitant fines. Greasing some bureaucrat's hand ensures that this will not take place. I have not met even one businessman in Greece who had not been able to entertain me with some very interesting stories about how this thing goes on and how often he or she has met it in his or her life. Jobs, as I said before, in the civil sector is, are not only perceived as sinecure, but also as instruments of personal enrichment. Many employees would use the infrastructure of the state apparatus for their own ends, which in effect means that services that are supposed to be free have in fact been privatized, in quotation marks. The provision of health services is a case in point. When a Greek has to undergo surgery in a public hospital, he knows that he or she will have to grease the surgeon's hand with some money underneath the operating table. 
This, of course, is illegal since the services in the public hospitals are supposed to be free. However, this practice, it's an institution in Greece, and it has a name. It's called fakelaki. Fakelaki means the little envelope. And that is because you put the money in a little envelope. You don't just give it like that. It's impolite. You have to put it in a little envelope before. <laughs> Another case in point is education. State secondary education is in principle free. Yet in practice, teachers lack the motivation and professionalism to provide students with an adequate education. As a result, most parents are, for, are forced to pay for private tutoring in most cases provided by the very same teachers that teach their kids at school. Uh, now, as a result, services that are in principle free require considerable expenditure on the part of the population. Needless to say that this is especially hard on lower income groups who are supposed to be the prime beneficiaries of such free public services. I'll just say a few words about the effects on the economy. It is estimated that in Greece, around 70% of the population receives its income wholly or partly from taxes or levies, which, of course, implies very intense and fierce rent-seeking struggles. This, as Gordon Tallock argued in his seminal 67 paper, 1967 paper, implies that a considerable amount of resources that could otherwise be used to generate wealth and income are wasted in fighting over the slices of a shrinking economic when the state, as is the case of Greece, becomes so heavily involved in providing benefits to some people at the expense of others, individuals and groups will invest more resources into effort designed to shape political outcome to their advantage. And many economists have argued that this is the main reason for the underdevelopment of third world countries. As Kruger pointed out in her study, in some of these countries, the regulation was so extensive that the government had the power to create rents equal to a large percentage of national income. Although no such study has been made of Greece, we can get an idea of the rents involved by some other studies that show that, for example, if Greece opened up its closed profession, this would amount to 1% increase in GDP. If it eliminated restriction in various markets, it would increase its GDP by 2%. And if it brought the bureaucratic costs of doing business in line with the rest of the EU countries, this would increase its GDP by 3.5%. Moreover, and this is the worst thing of all, I think, this system creates the very wrong set of incentives among the younger people who have to make a decision for their future career. In having to decide between an uncertain future in the private sector on the one hand and the secure, undemanding, and at the same time potentially lucrative job in the civil sector, it comes as no surprise that most young people reply in questionnaires that they, that they prefer the latter, that they prefer a job in the civil service. This is also reflected in the marriage market. Recently, I, I made a study of the preferences for male spouses uh, expressed by females, by the ladies, on the basis of data provided by marriage agencies located in Athens. The professions that came on top of the list were civil servants and military people, and that was not because of the uniforms. I mean, <laughs> the reason was the security in the civil service. I mean, you know, that they had a lifelong employment and that they were free from the whims of the market, as it's called. 
The high cost of bureaucracy also discourages the creation of domestic as well as foreign enterprises. The administrative cost of starting an enterprise in Greece amount to 7%, which is double the EU average, 3.5. The Harvard economist Alberto Alessina estimates that it costs $1,018 to obtain all the permits needed to start a business in Greece. In the U.S., it takes $166. In a recent poll, over 70% of Greek businessmen claimed that the influence of bureaucracy on their initial steps has been very negative which is no surprise since it has been estimated that the amount of bribes that the middle-sized enterprise in Greece has to pay to corrupt tax controllers amount to 3% of its annual turnover. Moreover, the high cost of bureaucracy, uh, including the cost of production, is one of the main reasons foreign companies mentioned for not investing in Greece. And in the last 20 years, Greece has occupied the last place on the OECD list of 30 countries concerning its ability to attract foreign investment. Here I would like to relate a personal experience, which you may consider as a joke, but it's true. A consultant to Russian businessmen told me recently that his clients hesitate to invest in Greece because they were afraid that they would lose their money due to corruption and the lack of credible institutions. Uh, now to conclude. To conclude, clientelism in Greece went hand in hand with the development of an oversized state apparatus where social groups competed not to enforce different policies but to reap personal gains. The Greek state is huge yet hollow, right to Greek academics in a recent book. It intervenes in all aspects of economic and social activity, yet at the same time it has been taken over from within by organized groups that prey on the national welfare in the same way the Vikings were preying on the European societies a few centuries ago. One of the main criticisms the left has been directing all these years against capitalism is that capitalism puts markets above people. At the same time, the left believes that political intervention is needed to restore the people to the rightful place, lifting them, that is, from their tragic position of slaves to the whims of the market to their glorified position of lords and masters of the market. What makes the case of Greece interesting is that Greece, in a certain sense, can be said to provide the perfect realization of the vision of the left the vision of putting people above markets. As I try to show in my presentation, Greek politicians have indeed always placed people, that is, their clients, above markets, with the results we can all see today. Thank you. Thanks very much, uh, Takis. Our next speaker is Patrick Welter, who is the economics correspondent at the German daily newspaper Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. And he has uh, been the correspondent for that paper here in Washington since January of this year. Prior to that, he was stationed in Tokyo for about three years, uh, where he covered the economies of Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. Before leaving Europe in 2007, he covered for about a decade or more uh, developments towards the European Monetary Union uh, and the European Central Bank, as well as economic policy issues in general. 
Uh, <coughs> Patrick Velter joined the, the newspaper in 2002 after having worked for uh, the Economics Daily Handelsblatt. He also is an author of several uh, publications, including Less is More, Future Prospects for the International Monetary Fund, and is the co-author of a yearly publication on economic freedom within the German federal system. Please help me welcome Mr. Belter. So, thanks so much. My name is Patrick Welter, and I would like to thank the Cato Institute, Tom Palmer, and Ian Vasquez for inviting me. I would have never thought that I would stand here because I got in contact with Cato already early 90s when I was a fellow at George Mason University, Institute for Humane Studies. Now I'm here and I'm standing here, and I will talk a little bit about the implications of the mess we have in Europe now for the, for the Eurozone and for the EU as such. Do you think we might elevate the volume so we can hear the uh, Oh, sorry. Sorry, thanks for reminding me. Uh, Mr. Mikas has talked has, has drawn a wonderful picture of a rent-seeking society in Greece, and I was reminded, uh, listening to him, I thought the Greece government has done a very good job during the last weeks in pressing the EU and the IMF to be ready to give money to the Greece government. In that respect, it fits very well. Uh, Mr. Mikas drawn as well the picture of a very regulated society where there is no, not very much flexibility in the markets. And that reminded me to one fundamental rule which was discussed very much in the EU in the 90s and which was forgotten very much afterwards, that there was one fundamental condition when you, when you enter, when you want to join a European a monetary union and when you want to fix your exchange rate because EMU as such means fixing nominal exchange rates. That means that every economic adjustment you have to have in, the, in your country has to take place by the real, not by the real exchange rates, which means the, you have to have a very high flexibility of internal markets and internal prices in your country. And seeing, listening to Mr. Mikas, you, you just wonder whether Greece fits at all the conditions for being member of the EMU, and you wonder as well whether there's any possibility to change if there are 70% of the population being dependent in their income from the government. How do you ever want to get political support for uh, necessary structural reforms you need to have to get more flexibility into the markets? Uh, that was my first remark. My second remark is... Uh, there is some kind of tendency now to blame you, to blame Greece for the mess which, they have, which Greece has created. And I would argue for sure, Greece, on the first, uh, first point of view, is, is responsible for what happened in their country. The Greek governments are responsible for that. But I would say don't blame Greece alone. Blame the EU as such and blame the, uh, blame the EU and blame the European Monetary Union. Why? Because most of what happened today was already known before Greece entered the European, the European Monetary Union. So all the problems EMU has today now is the result of the outcome that they let Greece into the EMU. 
before, before entering the EMU, uh, before deciding in 1998 that the EMU would finally start in 1999, there were a test for all countries which would be a, which the, whether they would be allowed to join or whether they would fulfill the conditions like flexibility of the markets, low interest rates, low long-term, uh, low inflation rate, things like that. And at that time, it was said, okay, Greece, is, Greece does not fit to, fulfill, to get ready, is not ready for entering the EMU. So it was just 11 countries starting the EMU in 1999. But at that time, when the decision was done in May 1998, pretty much everyone knew, and it was, there was some implicit promise to Greece that they would be allowed to enter before the European notes and currency coins would be allowed, uh, would be brought into a circulation in 2000, that was 2002. So even Greece was given some kind of implicit promise at that time that they will be allowed to join the EMU. In that respect, there was no further incentive to try anything to, get, to fulfill the conditions. And if you look to 2000, uh, 2000, May 2000, when they finally decided about that Greece should be allowed to join the EMU, if you look whether Greece fulfilled the conditions or not, I mean, formally they fulfilled the conditions, but if you look at the, uh, the, real, thi the real things going on, they did not fulfill the conditions, especially if you look at the condition of a low inflation rate. Greece got a low inflation rate just, in just right in time because they did some kind of gentleman's agreements with, their, with the companies not to raise prices. And just in time for, for this entrance test of, uh, to EMU, uh, they brought down temporarily indirect taxes on goods. So the inflation rate was going, for, was going down just to fulfill the entry conditions. And what happened afterwards? I mean, the inflation rate was going up again when they, after they entered the EMU. So at that time, the European Central Bank has to give an opinion and has to do some convergence reports before another, a new country is going to be allowed into EMU. And the European Central Bank at that time, and it's report from, March 2000, from May 2000, they wrote, there must be an ongoing, ongoing concern at two, where the sustainability of the fiscal position in Greece has been achieved. And if you know central bankers, and if you know a little bit of central bank talk, this means Greece is not ready to join the EMU. They can't make it more explicit, but that was the impression at that time. But it was a political decision to let Greece in. Everything, everything was known that they would not fit into the EMU, uh, but it was a political decision. So they were let in. I would argue for that reason. Don't blame Greece alone. Blame the, EM, blame the EU as such. Uh, the second argument I would bring forward to, to underline that point is you have this, I would say that Greece seems to be a singular case in the EU, but in my understanding, Greece is just the tip of the iceberg. There were some kind of fiscal rules in the EU, uh, in some kind of institutional setup, and the fundamental reason, reasoning behind that is if the monetary policy is centralized and if the fiscal policy is not centralized, as it is the case in the EU, you need to have some kind of additional rules. So Germany came up with the idea because Germans were very afraid at that time, and they are, they are still afraid at that time, 
um, today that EMU might become some kind of inflationary exercise. So Germany, the German government, in order to convince German people, which never, never happened, by the way, if you look to polls, but anyhow, they came up with the idea to create some kind of fiscal rule for participants of EMU countries. And the fiscal rule is that in, gen in general, in normal economic times, you should have a balanced, balanced budget or even a small surplus. This is what's written in the EU, con EU treaty. Usually people talk about 3% rule. You, you would be allowed to have a deficit of 3% of GDP. If you, look, if you have a close look at the EU treaty, this is the exception, which is the EU treaty demands from the countries to, have a, to run a balanced budget. And the 3% rule is just regarded as an exception. But anyhow, the exception has become norm in Europe, and pretty much nobody talks about balanced budgets any longer, and they just talk about the 3% rule. So they never took that, that condition really seriously. Uh, there are two reasons for this pact, for this gem idea. If you go into EMU, you, don't have no, you have no longer exchange rate risks. Exchange rate risks are a very good incentive for investors, foreign investors, to think about what they do when they buy, for example, Greece governmental bonds or when they buy German governmental bonds. So you, the pact should serve to some degree so you have a less incentive for the governments of the EMU countries to, to pursue a solid fiscal policy. So the idea of the pact was, if we give up this market pressure, we set up some kind of political institutional setup to, um, to substitute the market. And the other reasoning behind this pact was, if you give up this, if you, if you, yeah, if, the, if you give up the flexible exchange rate, if you give up this market system, there might be pressure on the ECB if countries are running high deficits. And the ECB might be pressured into uh, lowering interest rates and give, uh, running a more expansive monetary policy. So the idea of the pact was, if you can have some kind of ruling on fiscal policy, there might be less pressure on the ECB. But unfortunately, all these obligations and this nice thinking behind it never helped, because if you look at the last decade of the history of EMU, uh, EMU, these obligations were never enforced. And they can't be enforced because the institutional setup is that the Council of Finance Ministers has to decide on, on specific cases whether they fulfill the, the pact or not. So sinners are judging on, about sinners, and you see the outcome in the European Union because there are no balanced budgets except in very small cases, in very small countries and in some cases. So again, I would say this, is, this shows the, the whole institutional setup in the EU about fiscal policy does not work. And you might just wonder why, why should anybody be surprised that Greece would not, was not able to fulfill their obligations as the other governments never were able as well. So in that sense, don't blame Greece alone and just understand that the institutional setup of the EMU is not, is not a good substitute for the market pressure of flexible exchange rates. Uh, let's have a short look what happened this year since January or since December, put it that way. 
in my understanding, there was some kind of, and that was my opening remark about the good rent-seeking done by the Greece government, there was some kind of nice, nice game that was played between the markets and the governments. The financial markets, they got very excited. They were putting pressure on Greece. Greece were claiming for help for the European Union. German Chancellor got very excited, and other politicians as well. So they gave in. They said early in the beginning, yeah, we will do some kind of help. They didn't specify it at that time. And then there was some kind of downward spiral or upward spiral. I mean, that was just enough to satisfy the markets for some days or some weeks. And then the markets got nervous again. And then the politicians started again to promise something. And they even got all the time clearer. And especially the Greece government was very good in that respect in this whole political game because they, all the time they mentioned they might, we might go to the IMF. If, you, if, the Euro, if the European Union does not give us money, we might go to the IMF. And that was, the financial, that was just to put pressure on the EU governments to move. If we look at these, what happened here, yeah, the question is, should the IMF intervene in, uh, in Greece or should the IMF intervene in EMU? And this was the other side of the whole discussion taking place over the last three, three months approximately in Europe. The first reaction of the European government, government, governments was ne never ever should the IMF intervene into the Eurozone. And you might think this is just some kind of political pride and they said we want to do it alone. But they, they gave some, there were some arguments behind it which you could hear out of Brussels coming out of the EU. The first argument is if there, were fear of, uh, there was a fear of American influence because the IMF is seen in Europe mostly as, uh, yeah, and very much influenced by the United States and the Europeans just, just didn't like that idea. In my sense, that argument does not make sense at all. The EU states have a higher voting have a higher voting share in IMF than the United States. The United States has about 18% EMU. Countries has 23%. EU countries has 32%. And the decision about loans in the IMF is done is not done by is just done by simple majority decisions. Formally, usually it's taken by unanimous consent. And the United States, right from the beginning, have made it very much clear that they that this is a European case and that they are not going to influence any decision by the IMF. Second argument which was given, IMF could influence monetary policy or independence of the ECB. That argument makes no sense at all. IMF has very much experiences to go into monetary unions. You just can look at the West African Monetary Union where the IMF has given help and has run programs. Third argument is, yeah, we have to do it alone. IMF doesn't intervene in California, so why should IMF intervene in Greece? Uh, that was brought forward by the German Minister of Finance, and this position is now being given up. The second, second round of the whole drama, which happened for over the last three months, was we want to create a European monetary fund. So having the idea not to let the IMF in, but doing the same thing at the IMF, this idea has been given up today as well. And the final solution which came out some weeks ago is we will have some kind of come help by EU and by IMF. When I say by EU, it's not, it's not correct. The idea is 
to do, give come help, financial help to Greece in case of need by the IMF and by some EU member state countries because the EU as such as institution is not allowed to give any financial help to a member state of the EMU. This is, this is forbidden in the country, uh, in, the, in the Maastricht Treaty because that might lead to some kind of bailout and there is the no bailout clause in the Maastricht Treaty which, are, which says that no, no government and not even not the EU as such should take responsibility for debts of any government of, a EU, of an EMU member state. So if you look to this solution, uh, let me just give two or three final comments how I judge this solution. And if you have any questions about whether EMU is going to be destroyed over the whole case, we might discuss it later. Uh, my judgment of the IMF getting into EMU is, first, there is, a certain, there is a certain plausibility behind it because IMF is seen as some kind of tough enforcer of rules. And there is a ho some kind of hope by Greece support, or Greece people and by Greece observers and by European observers that the IMF might be stronger than the EU in enforcing fiscal discipline in Greece. But what the EU never managed over the last decade, so the idea was the IMF can do it. I have a lot of doubts about that. If you look to the IMF experiences, the IMF is not really good in enforcing fiscal discipline, and even the independent evaluation office of the IMF came to the conclusion that just in 60% 60, 60 of cases, the IMF was able to, to, get a, to, to better the fiscal position of a country, and in 40% of cases, the fiscal situation went worse. So I have seriously, serious problems about the IMF as being the strict enforcer of fiscal discipline. Uh, then I have two very important arguments against IMF intervention into the EMU, because you have this no bailout clause in the EMU, which I just mentioned, and I see the, the solution which the EU governments together with the IMF came up now is, is a complete break of the no bailout clause. Legally, the ECB at the beginning said we, don't, we can't have the IMF in, and now they accept it. And this is the same German government has changed their mind as well. And legally, they argue nowadays, even the ECB argues, it might be possible to give bilateral credits to other governments in the EU, and it might be possible to, get a, to give credits by IMF to one of these governments, and this would not be a, um, a break with the no bailout clause. But economically, uh, it's pretty much clear the problem in Greece is they are running out of money and they might have problem to get money from the capital markets. So if they will get short-term credits by EU governments to some degree or by the IMF to some degree, the EU governments are bailing out Greece. So this is a break of this most fundamental principle in the, for the fiscal stability in the Eurozone. And for that reason, I think no government should do that. And the second argument I have about potential IMF intervention in Greece is where does, where does the IMF get its money from? The IMF is fundamentally financed by the, by the central banks of its member states. So it's not that IMF is taking up credits, but IMF is just going to a central bank and says, 
I need money, so print more money, and I can spend that money and give it to another government. So what's happened with the IMF intervention in Greece? If the IMF is going to give a credit to Greece, it will be a monetary financing of governmental debt. And this and Bundesbank and other countries, because it's not the ECB. ECB is not a member of IMF, but Bundesbank, Banque de France, Banca d'Italia, and all these central banks are member of the IMF. So why at the IMF we will get a situation where European central banks are financing by printing money, are financing in the end Greece debt. And that is forbidden in the Maastricht Treaty. And this is something German population will never allow. I mean, this, is, uh, this was one of the biggest fears of the German population before, the, before EMU, that the central bank might be used to print money for financing governmental debt. But this is exactly what's going to happen as soon as the IMF is going to give credit, uh, give loans to the uh, government in Athens. So for that reason, I fear that with the decision to let the IMF earn, the whole, yeah, it's, it's, it's the worst situation ever which could take place, and it's definitely the worst break of any rule which was set up before EMU than ever happened in the last decade. If you look to the markets today, they talk about, I've mentioned that there was three stages of argumentation before letting the IMF in. First they said no, then they said we make a European monetary fund, and then they decided to let him in. If you look to the markets today, before I left, the interest rates for gov Greek government bonds were at 7.6%, which is more than 4% percentage points higher than German Bund, which is back to the situation early February and even worse. And at the markets, they are talking about the end game. I'm pretty much sure that during the next days or weeks, we will see the IMF giving money to Greece government and the European government by other European governments as well. And that will be a complete breach of the Maastricht Treaty and the fundamental foundation of the EMU. Thanks so much. Thanks very much, Patrick, for explaining how uh, rules are being circumvented even as we speak. We have time for questions and answers now, and if you have a question, please raise your hand and wait for the microphone. Identify yourself and your affiliation <coughs> and who you would like to direct your question to. We have a question up front, please. There. My question is, to, my name's Todd C. Wiggins. My question is to Mr. Welter with respect to uh, the Germans' view on the situation with the U.S. deficit. Uh, do you have any perspective on that? Do they have uh, any um, cautionary tales to share with uh, U.S. citizens about our situation as it stands in general? No. Okay. Uh, there is a certain fear in Germany that uh, you will get in run, that you are running into big problems. But in my understanding, I would say the European problems are even bigger. And it's that uh, the fact that German government, uh, German politicians or European politicians in the last weeks love to bring up the problems of the United States, this is just trying to circumvent that people take a closer look at their own fiscal problems. 
So, but in my in my point of view, I'm pretty much sure, as I always have the understanding, that the U.S. economy is much more flexible than any European economy. So you will come out out of the economic, and you see it already out of the economic crisis much earlier than all the other governments and countries. You will. There might be an open possibility. You you have a long run problem with your debt for sure. You have an aging society. You have a very expensive welfare system. You have a very expensive health system. But this is not specific to the United States. You find it everywhere. And for the cyclical problem of the part of the debt, I'm very much optimistic that you will overcome that much much earlier than all the other European as European countries or Japan, for example. Yeah. Question right there, please. Uh, yes, my name is Elio Oliva. I am uh, representing myself. This is a question from Mr. Welter. Um, do you think the IMF will indeed follow through with a bailout of Greece? And if so, what would be the political repercussions in Germany? Okay. Uh, first, I think, yes, as soon as Greece government is going, to, going ahead, IMF is going to give money to Greece. Mm, the managing director, Strauss-Kahn, has made it pretty much clear already before anybody in Europe was talking about potential IMF intervention, he said already, hey, we are here, we have money, we want to give it to you. And the whole situation fits very well into the political agenda of managing director, Strauss-Kahn. So for sure, IMF is going to give money. M might be about $10 billion, might be a little bit more. Uh, if you compare that to the recent cases in other EU states. Political implications for Germany, you can be sure if this is going to happen that there will be a bailout of Greece. You can be sure that there will be a lawsuit at the Constitutional Court in Germany. There was a group of people, professors and others, four people before EMU even started who went to Constitutional Court arguing that Germany should not be allowed into the EMU. And at that time, the Constitutional Court decided, as the EMU has not started, there is still, in my words now, this is not the legal phrasing, but the argument was uh, EMU has not started. It might become some kind of inflationary uh, group. And as soon as it becomes an inflationary group, Germany might be allowed to leave the EMU. And they, they proclaimed the right to throw... Yeah, to decide against on the case later again. And if the IMF is getting in, if you have this bailout, you will see a new constitutional lawsuit in Germany, and we will see what will be the outcome, yes. German population does not like the idea of giving money to Greece at all. That was very nicely brought up by Ian, yeah. Yes. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm David Kelly from the Atlas Society. I have a question for Mr. Mikas. Uh, you contrasted the, the appeal of uh, job security in the public sector in Greece with the uncertainties of the private sector and, and also the, the, uh, uh, the, the cost that uh, private businesses end up paying uh, for no service but just simply for the coercive uh, power of the state. But my question is whether and to what extent uh, the culture of entitlement by seniority and cronyism and so forth that seems to be at work in the 
in the state also spills over to the way private businesses are run as a cultural matter, if not as a matter of political enforcement. Yeah, very good question. I think that given the fact that in Greece a very big part of the private sector consists of medium-sized companies which are in most cases family-owned, you would find uh, similarly that the kind of promotion and uh, prospects for promotion which somebody has in the in these medium-sized enterprises would be much more related to personal characteristics, like, for example, whether he, sh- he ser- shares the same genes with the owners of the company rather than to their own merits or ability. So in that sense, there is also some kind of distortion going on in the system of the hierarchical system and promotion system in the private sector. But, of course, this does not apply to big companies. I mean, big companies have their own networking, but it's a different kind from the sort of thing you find in the public sector. (coughs) Yes, right there in the aisle in the back. Uh, Chris Bladavsky from Manufacturers Alliance. I'd like to follow up on the, on that question, uh, and that's a question to Mr. Welter. Um, regardless whether the IMF is involved uh, and, and whether there, are, there is forthcoming assistance from the European Union, however structured, it seems to me that the technical default by Greece is, is pretty much inevitable, whether by missing a payment or paying less than the notional amount uh, on the debenture. Uh, what I find amazing uh, from from your presentation is the insistence on Germ- on the part of Germans uh, or, or Germany itself of not coming with assistance to Greece. If if Greece does default, there's going to be massive collateral damage in terms of growth, per- perhaps a, a severe recession in the rest of the Europe. Um, and with two thirds of German exports going uh, to the rest of Europe, this is certainly going to to have negative consequences for the German business cycle, for for income, for employment, and everything else. So by by not trying to uh, keep the house in order, quote-unquote, the Germans are effectively, implicitly also voting for negative consequences onto themselves if, uh, if indeed Greece does, um, does default. Does that figure at all in, in any of the debates that are taking place in Germany? Okay. Uh, first, let's see whether Greece is going to get into default. I would not be as sure. I mean, at least during the last weeks, they were quite successful in raising money at the capital markets at a high price. But uh, until now, we're going to see whether they will get the $10 billion till the end of May or not. I wouldn't be as sure that Greece is going to default this year. Uh, second, Germany has declared right from the beginning, first very hiddenly, but afterwards, now it's pretty much clear, they have said in case of need, Greece will get money from Germany. I mean, the first, the first statement by the EU, this was sometimes in the end of January, early February, it was if there was the statement was by the EU member states if if there was a necessity, we will do something to solve the situation. They didn't give any details at that time, but it was pretty much clear that that was an implicit process uh, some kind of implicit promise to even give money to Greece to help into this, in that situation. I mean German Chancellor Merkel 
has said a lot of things during the last weeks. They said we don't want to give money. They said we, we should throw out Greece maybe out of the EMU, which is not going to take place for sure, due to the bilateral interests. But the whole strategy, you have to look at the strategy of the German government. They know that in case, if there is a default, they will have to give money due to the considerations you, you said. But what they... Yes. It would be the last resort. Sure. Yeah, sure, sure. They said, she said last resort. But the whole strategy of the German government seemed to be that they tried to calm down the markets so that Greece might have the opportunity to get enough capital on the markets that Germany would not be forced into paying uh, for the mess. And that was the strategy. And this is still the strategy and whether this end game, which the uh, financial markets have started yesterday, is going to be loans to Greece or not, we're going to see. But that was the political strategy right from the beginning. Patrick, I just want to ask you, what do you estimate as being the size of the collateral damage in case Greece defaults? I can't estimate that. I, I there were some numbers out. Let me have a look. There were some numbers out. You have the problem that German banks, French banks, uh, banks from other EU countries have a lot of money, have invested a lot of money in Greece, into Greece governmental bonds and interbank loans. And there were no, these numbers. Uh, in Germany, cross-border bank lending to Greece by German banks is about one, in Germany is about 1.1% per, 1 of GDP. In France, it's about 2.5% of GDP. This is definitely one risk. And you might have the risk if, if Greece would go into default, which I'm not sure that they will ever do this year, but if they would go into default, you will have problems with Greece banks, and this is going to infect other European banks, and you will have a, some kind of economic fallout in Europe. But I have never seen any estimates of the whole effect in I wouldn't dare to do that, yeah, to give any numbers. Sorry. There's a question way in the back. Uh, Wayne Mary of the American Foreign Policy Council. I'd like to ask Mr. Mikas to make a political judgment. Greece faces a number of potentially unpleasant alternatives. What it's currently pursuing is essentially fiscal measures uh, that could put Greece into a very, very deep recession for a very long time. Leaving the Eurozone would allow Greece to deflate, which is the classic means of dealing with this kind of a problem, but would obviously be a huge political step for a country like Greece. Greece could also potentially default. I know that, that uh, Wolfgang Munchau of the Financial Times has said that he thinks Greece will not default this year, but would be forced to default beyond this year if it cannot deflate because he feels that the level of recessionary costs would be too great. But ask you as, as a Greek journalist to, to evaluate what are the politics of this? Which would be least un distasteful to the Greek body politic? Leaving the euro and deflating, defaulting, or recession? It's a very good question. I think one of the problems we face here 
is that both possibilities are considered uh, as being so far out in Greece, uh, so impossible, that nobody is spelling out the implications of each particular line of uh, choice. I mean, people don't know what default means. So there is no rational discussion on these options of uh, the option of defaulting or of the option of moving out, I mean, the, uh, moving out of the Eurozone. I mean, both are considered unthinkable. And I don't think uh, the present government would uh, even contemplate raising these issues. On the other hand, the Greek government, I think they believe that they will manage to somehow they have a great belief that if they bring tax evasion under control, the problem will be solved. Their argument is that the black economy or the para-economy is about 30% of the GDP, and you know, from the moment they are able to tax it, they will be able to uh, eliminate the public deficit. I mean, that is their argument. That, that, that is their, their main line of approach. So... Uh, what exactly? The, 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 the other problem is, of course, recession. A recession, the effects of recession will not happen tomorrow. They will happen, I mean, unemployment will not rise from one day to the other. It will take some time. Uh, in Greece, uh, the left is quite strong. Trade union, especially the trade unions in the public sector are very, very strong. So you are going to expect, you are going to have some reactions if Greece, if the IMF, for example, asks from Greece to fire a considerable portion of its civil servants, or if they are trying to... I mean, another thing which is Greece is doing now, the government is contemplating, is, of course, of eliminating all the structural rigidities, which I uh, elaborated in my paper. And they think that this will improve the Greek economy, make it more efficient, which, of course, it will do. But then again, the problem, what I think the main problem, political problem right now is, is that you have a government who says that we have to do all these things, but those things are not part of our ideology that if, for example, the situation was not as dire as it is, we would not take those measures. So they are doing something which is against their inner convictions. Now, if you do something which you don't believe in, you don't get very far. And that is my main worry. And having said that, it's not like that, on the other hand, you have a conservative party which is convinced about the reforms. I mean, let's not forget that it was the conservative party which pushed uh, public spending for 42% of GDP to 51% in the, in the course of five years. They employed 100,000 civil servants in the course of five years. So it's not like you have a libertarian party on the one hand and a socialist party on the other. It's like everybody is so much wedded into the system of benefits I described, into the system of political clientelism, that it's very hard for them to argue that those are measures which have to be taken under any circumstances, and we have to go ahead and be able to rationally explain why they have to do those things. Is there any political leader or even opinion leader making that case in Greece? Case what? The case for 
serious reform? Yes, well, they are. I mean, the present government is talking about reforms, but when they, they are talking about the necessity about reforms, but they are mostly concentrating on tax evasion. I mean, that is their main mantra. Of course, I mean, they are a socialist government, so they have to talk mostly about tax evasion. At the same time, they talk about the reforms. But they are not, it's not a government, and, and the same goes for the opposition. I mean, they are not focusing so much on reforms because the reforms are going to hurt. They are going to hurt the clients' groups. They are going to hurt the truck drivers who are going to lose their medallion licenses. Then, I mean, the previous government tried to do something about the truck drivers, and then you had the truck drivers taking over the streets. And what do you do next? Do you send the Marines, I mean, to clear the streets? Well, what do you do? I mean, it's... In a certain sense, the state in Greece is very big and at the same time very weak. It's really it's a hollow state which is taken over by those groups. So you really, I mean, there is, I mean, there is a problem. <laughs> the economic problem is fundamentally a political problem. We have time for one or two more questions. We'll take one there and then one there. Tom Palmer from Cato and the Atlas Economic Research Foundation. Just in general... What signal is this sending to any other countries teetering on the edge if they do get this uh, assistance? Uh, what about the moral hazard problem and trying to put out not just six months or two years, but over the next five to ten years? It's a follow-up on the question that was posed earlier. I mean, it's pretty much clear that the moral hazard problem will be for every country, every country, you don't even have to try to bring deficits down because the others are going to help you. And that, if, if you think through how this is going to develop over several years, it might lead to the breakup of EMU in some point. Yeah. I mean, either you will have a huge economic mess in the EU at that time, or it might lead to the breakup. But just as a very short remark, uh, one remark to your questions about is Greece going to leave the EMU? I don't think so. And I'm quite astonished that in America this argument is very popular, or heard quite often. Because leaving EMU for Greece would be economic suicide. Just imagine they would leave the EMU. I mean, today the interest rates, they have to pay 7.6%. Just imagine what would happen if they leave EMU. I mean, the interest rates would skywalk. And that might be, I mean, the former chief economist of ECB always said, he's a quite, a, quite a liberal, free market-oriented guy, and he always said leaving EMU is economic suicide for any country. And the second, if you think about breaking up EMU, you have, you have to look at Germany. I mean, as long as the German government is inclined to have EMU, they will always pay. And you have to look at the, at the relation between the German government and the German population. EMU Euro was never popular with the German population. And even today, if you have, you have polls, more than 50% of people just say, we want our Deutschmark back. So... The whole, the whole question about breaking up EMU is going to be decided in the relationship between the German government, whatever color it has, whatever political orientation, and the role of the German population and the ideas of the German population. We'll take one last question over there, please. 
Hi, this is Oli Udaki from the Greek Service of the Voice of America. The question is for Mr. Walter. You referred to what is the worst solution with uh, the participation of the IMF. What do you think could be the best version of a solution, if we can talk in those terms? I guess it's wishful thinking. The best version would be Greece governments and Greece population would understand what the fundamental rules of EMU are. If you give up your f the flexible exchange rate, you have to have flexibility in your country. And if you don't do that, you get into the economic problems uh, and the political problems because this quite so good. And what I think will be the most probable outcome, I guess IMF, and EU countries are going to... Yeah, there were two things. Either EMU, uh, either Greece is getting its money at the capital markets, and I would not exclude that possibility. And all this, all this talks on the capital markets about a possible default, it might happen that the default is not, just not going to take place this year because they will get the money. Until now, they have got the money they needed. And that is one option. And the other op option would be most plausible. Yeah, IMF and EU kind of governments are stepping in, giving money to Greece. This is going to solve the problem for some years. And for some reason, EM EMU is going to muddle through. And then we will look at the long-term prospects. Tom Palmer mentioned, yeah. And go see what's happening with that, yeah. Well, thank you very much. I'd like to ask the audience to thank our speakers today. And we didn't solve Greece's problems, but uh, uh, all in all, this, this is a, a drama that's going to continue for the next several years. And I think this, this may, very well may be the first act in a, in a very large drama. You can continue the discussion upstairs with a free lunch. <laughs>